Welcome to the Leadership Development Group's Health Ecosystem Leadership Podcast Series. We're excited to have you join us. My name is Tracy Duberman. I'm the founder and CEO of the Leadership Development Group. We are a global coaching and leadership development consultancy with an exclusive focus in the health industry. Over the years, we've had the distinct pleasure of working with some of the brightest talent in our industry, leaders who are clearly making a difference in the work they do to provide high quality care for those in need while designing approaches to enhance health and wellness. The purpose of this podcast series is to showcase how leadership is the essential ingredient to address the ever-growing issues and challenges facing the U.S. healthcare industry. As we know through our work, the great majority of these challenges are too complex and wide-ranging for any one sector to solve independently. This is where a health ecosystem leadership approach pays more than significant dividends. Solutions which emphasize how the various sectors of the health industry operate interdependently are the only ones with the potential to deliver on critical imperatives like affordability, access, and outcomes. During this podcast series, we will introduce you to some of the best and brightest health ecosystem leaders who will share practical examples of how they have successfully demonstrated a collaborative mindset, as well as the critical behaviors that lead to positive outcomes for their organizations, their patients, and the communities they serve. Welcome everyone to this week's Helm podcast. I am pleased to welcome my friend and colleague, Stuart Kleinman, who serves as the newly appointed partner and head of Building Industry Partners Center of Excellence, focused on human capital management. Building Industry Partners is the leading private equity firm in the building industry, focused on helping communities create value, not just for their customers and shareholders, but for their most critical stakeholders, their employees. In this role, Stu's primary focus is helping BIP's portfolio companies and the industry at large create people-first culture that reinforces the holistic well-being of employees and their families, while at the same time supporting better business performance and bottom-line financial results. Prior to joining BIP, Stu was a founder and partner for 25 years at Vantage Partners, a mid-sized consulting and training organization specializing in biopharmaceuticals and healthcare. In addition to helping steer Vantage's strategic direction and sitting on its management committee at various times, Climate oversaw several operational functions, including human resources in marketing and directly drove profits for the firm. Stu has authored many research reports and white papers on topics ranging from strategy and management to key capabilities for leaders and the future of work. He was recently appointed to the Strategic Advisory Board of the Simmons College Institute for Inclusive Leadership, where he was part of an esteemed group of experts in the fields of equity, inclusion and diversity, talent and leadership development, and culture change. Stu graduated from the Marshall College and Harvard Law School. Anything you'd like to add to your incredible background, Stu? Well, no. Other than that, it's so wonderful to be here and, uh, and to see you and chat with you this morning, Tracy. Thanks so much for inviting me along. I'm looking forward to it. We're really excited. Our listeners are very familiar with guests from across what we call the health ecosystem, which are leaders like yourself, but they primarily focus on health systems, pharmaceutical companies, and payer organizations, of which you are very familiar with from your prior career. That said, the building industry and your focus in terms of creating a people-first culture within the industry itself 
is something that is of enormous interest to us as it relates to health adjacent social determinants of health, focusing on individuals and their health and wellness from an employer perspective, specifically in the building industry. It's very wonderful for our audience to get a sense of what attracted you to this organization. Given your experience and background and learning a little bit more about BIP, who they are and what they stand for. So take it away, Stu. Yeah, thanks. Again, it's, it's, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, BIP, Building Industry Partners, is an investment firm focused on the lower and middle market of the building and construction industry. Um, so, you know, think of your local lumber products uh, um, a distribution company, um, folks who both support um, do-it-yourselfers and also uh, builders in the construction industry, um, as well as manufacturers of different um, kinds of building materials um, that you might you know, put in your house or that might support some kind of project that you have going on. Um, and uh, oftentimes family-owned businesses, uh, which uh, is very, very interesting and creates all sorts of, uh, all sorts of interesting uh, dynamics and, and, and challenges. Um, and, you know, I was attracted to this um, new center of excellence concept in this investment firm for, for just a, a whole bunch of, of reasons. Um, you know, this is a sector that has not traditionally done a great job of treating people like assets instead of, instead of costs, right? Um, and by that, I mean that they have not been uh, traditionally great at focusing in on tapping into people's, you know, demonstrated and latent capabilities and their passions and predilections. Um, and, you know, other industries, and I imagine many of the folks who are listening in today are in industries that have done much better um, at that, right? You know, not new ideas necessarily. Um, but here, in many ways, a lot of things that um, many, many of your listeners think of as kind of proven fact or table stakes in terms of what actually makes a business successful um, is a little bit less clear. You know, family-owned, small businesses, tight margins, hard investments, cyclical industries, um, people who maybe have only worked in one firm their whole lives who so don't have... Um, lots of opportunity to experience and learn from, you know, great leaders in lots of different places and lots of us do as we um, figure out who we are as leaders and as we think about um, uh, how we can um, uh, interact with our colleagues to have the greatest effect. So for me, um, this was just a tremendous opportunity to try to um, impact a lot of folks. Um, that's a big part of our mission. We do have, as, a, as, as you well know, sort of a do well and do good parts of our mission. Um, so we want to impact people in some significant ways um, in our businesses. Um, we do hope to be a little bit of a model for other private equity firms um, that oftentimes are not seen as being uh, particularly people friendly or people focused. So we're hoping to sort of prove out um, that, in fact, investment in people is important. Um, we have a model, Tracy, where you know, we are setting aside 10% of the profits of the sale of any of our businesses over time for employees. 
Um, and we see that as kind of core to developing what we call kind of ownership cultures um, in our businesses. Again, um, A, because we think it's the right thing to do and B, because we think it's a great model for private equity in the industry at large. So, um, and there's just tremendous change management uh, challenges associated with it. So for me, I was uh, seduced a little bit into the job and, and into this um, uh, because I think the mission is tremendously important and I think the work is, uh, is super interesting. Yes, it really is. When I think about the type of leadership that's required to invest in people for the long haul, that in and of itself is a challenge. When you think about it from the perspective of private equity, where the profit motive drives the industry, that is even more challenging. So what was the specific situation that led building industry partners to take a look and say, this is really important. We want to invest in people. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's it's a foundational question. I guess a couple of things. So, um, I uh, have joined a firm which is both a new firm and an old firm, um, and it's an old firm in that the folks who I joined had a tremendous amount of success um, in private equity in the lower and middle market in the past. Um, had you know world class returns for their investors. Um, and as they looked around, they realized that as well as they had done, um, they did a lot of that great um, result. They got a lot of those great results without actually much of a focus on people um, and realized that there was this tremendous untapped asset that was sitting there that if they could tap into that asset, they could actually de-risk their investments even more, right? Um, and um, uh, enhance the likelihood of being even more successful. So on the business side, a hard business reality that um, a lot of the things, again, as I said, that make businesses great in other industries actually um, were not being attended to um, in this industry and in the investments that they had. And so, you know, just from sort of, again, a hard business perspective and on both sides, right, de-risking the business through more of a focus on people, and enhancing results, right? Enhance productivity, uh, greater safety, um, um, you know, better customer relationships, better opportunity to collaborate with suppliers. All of those things come with people. And I, I would say, in a macro sense, also at the at the industry level, the the building industry has a huge number of challenges. Um, in general, it's got labor shortages. Um, uh, it, um, it's there, the, the average age is something like, I don't know, 52 or 53 in the, um, in the industry. It's got sustainability challenges. Um, it's got um, challenges related to affordable housing. Um, and so both at our businesses and at the industry, there was a recognition by my, by my new partners that none of the challenges of the building industry um, would be um, well handled without great people. <laughs> and, you know, unless we can attract, retain, and develop great people, we will never be able to have the strongest businesses that we want, and we won't have an industry that, um, that can deal well with the kind of macro challenges in which it, in which it faces. So, um, you know, in that regard, I think we see um, uh, kind of a people first focus as being um, as being on the one hand 
um, a critical ends, excuse me, a critical means <laughs> to great business results. And we also think that it is an end in and of itself, um, doing well by our people. So we view it as kind of a, both um, ends and means. Um, uh, the means to great business results and to creating an industry that's prepared to deal well with the challenge and a great end in and of itself because uh, people ought to be well treated, um, they ought to be actualized and they ought to um, live um, wonderful lives. And we think that um, there is all sorts of opportunities to, um, for no other reason than it's the right thing to do, um, enhance people's lives uh, through, our, through our mechanisms. Uh, but we need to talk to our investors and make sure they're also clear that that's not why we're doing it, right? And we are, to be very clear, we are not a firm that is saying to investors, um, as some social justice-oriented kind of firms are, we are not saying take less in returns, uh, but feel good about it. We're saying we actually think we can do both. We actually think we can um, uh, provide our investor investors world-class business returns while also um, enhancing the, the employee value proposition of our firm. And that phrase we hear you talk about so often, doing well by doing good, it's fantastic. Are you looking now within the BIP portfolio for a different type of investor? Is this an investor that is committed to enhancing wellness, really enhancing individual lives? That's a, that's a great question, Tracy. And we have spent some time internally debating on that. Um, I think the answer to it, though, is no. We are not um, looking for investors who are looking to make um, do good investments, at least not investors who are looking to do make do good investors only. We are, we are looking for, and we're actually sort of up for the challenge of, of bringing in um, your most hard-nosed um, focused on doing well for themselves, um, investors, uh, because we're pretty confident in our thesis, right? Now, they need to be comfortable that we are going to invest in people. They need to understand that just like um, someone might invest in a firm that was focused on enhanced ERP systems or you know, greater marketing, and they'll say that's their secret sauce. Um, we want our investors to understand our secret sauce is investing in people, um, uh, and we're going to do those things. And in fact, as I mentioned before, you know, they're signing documents that, um, that says we're going to give 10% of the profits to employees through an employee equity appreciation program. Um, so they know that, um, you know, we're, we're committing that we, we believe that we can, um, deliver them world-class returns, um, while investing in people, while, um, uh, keeping 10% of the profits for the employees. In thinking about evaluating your metrics to success, it's a long-term plan, you said, but is BIP thinking within the next three to five years that they'd hope to see the same or better returns on investment from their stakeholders? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so, I mean, our, our, we, we, we've got sort of a typical, um, a typical hold period for a private equity firm. We will see what the market provides us, but we're we're looking to have, you know, um, uh, again, you know, world class returns. That's what my partners have delivered in the past, and um, you know, we are we will also be working to try to report out 
um, how we're doing on both parts of the mission. So our, our, the documents that we will provide our LPs from a reporting perspective will not only be on the do well side of our mission, it will also be on the do good side of our mission, trying to you know, measure how employees themselves are viewing um, uh, the, how we're doing up against that and, and this notion of the employee value proposition, as well as we'll probably report out on various of the activities in which we're engaged to try to, try to do so. Excellent. I imagine the firms that are a part of your portfolio were attracted to VIP for that specific reason, and they're lucky to be a part of this new mission and innovation. We, we, uh, we, we hope that they will feel that way in the future. We've got a long journey to go. <laughs> yes. yes, of course. I'm going to be watching with bated breath. It's good stuff. So we had an interesting conversation on an episode of this podcast with Michael Dowling, the CEO of Northwell Health, who you may know, he shared with us his view that medical care is a small component of overall health and well-being, which those of us in the health industry know very, very well. And in many ways, all things are tied back to health, meaning everyone has an important role to play when it comes to advancing health and wellness, both as individual and at a collective level. So in this vein, can you tell us about building industry partners' vision for a strong employee value proposition? And within the building industry, what you believe is the connection between a strong employee value proposition and health and well-being of employees in the building industry? Yeah, again, great, great question, Tracy. So first, um, uh, I think it's worth saying that for us, this language of EVP, employee value proposition, um, is, is not abstract and it's not undefined. Um, and so we define um, the employee value proposition um, within sort of a framework of five categories. So we think a strong employee value proposition consists of financial security, one, two, career resilience, um, three, advancement opportunities, fourth, what we call engagement, and fifth, what we call wellness. So financial security, career resilience, advancement opportunities, engagement, and, and, and wellness. Um, and you know, so we're, we're constantly thinking about in our firms, how do we advance the ball in each of those categories? And importantly, what is the sweet spot in terms of programs associated with each of those categories and better financial results, right? So how do those things fit together? And you can think of a virtuous cycle, right? Between doing well and doing good. If we're helping people feel more financially secure by, for example, you know, giving them an ownership stake in the business, right? By various pay for performance regimes, career resilience, helping people um, uh, uh, learn and engage and develop habits of mind that make them more resilient. For example, they're more curious, they're more interested in the world outside of them. They're, a, they're learning skills outside of their current, um, their current job description, advancement opportunities. They feel like if they succeed, they can be promoted and grow within engagement, right? They're connected to a, a real purpose and obviously wellness, right? You know, they're, you know, think of the, the, the world in which we're operating. They work in a safe and secure environment. They've got good, strong mental health services, um, benefits, things like that. So the, the first thing to say is, is that that is the framework in, through which 
I and we all are doing our thinking about employee value proposition. And I think when, when, when one says that, I think you can start to uh, hopefully see the connection, right, between uh, employee value proposition and, and kind of health and wellness kind of more broadly using the term that, that you're talking about, right? So, you know, financial security, um, I think connects to health and wellness in, in lots of ways, right? Um, first of all, people worry that they are not able to withstand um, various um, personal uh, calamities, right? Um, which creates a tremendous stress on people. And then obviously the ability to, right? And so that goes to, you know, are we able to, and again, these are relatively small businesses, tight margin, tough EBITDA, right? Are we able to provide, you know, healthcare packages and other kinds of things, right? You know, we're not just throwing money at things. We're trying to figure out, you know, what's the right way and how do we sort of enhance people's financial security through benefits? How do we help them, um, you know, um, do greater and more successful financial planning, right? You know, a lot of these folks don't have you know, any experience with financial planning, budgeting, things like that. Can we bring some tools to, you know, help them help them do those things, right? That you could sort of view that as only through the narrow lens of finances, uh, but I think that has a lot to do with people's um, health long-term, right? You know, ability to withstand challenges, mental health, things like that. Wellness, as I mentioned, um, you know, it is, um, it is really, really, really good for businesses bottom line um, to have um, a workforce that um, is well, to use to, to sort of frame it in that way, right? It reduces absenteeism, uh, people who feel comfortable at, in a workplace environment don't leave that workplace environment. We've got tremendous, tremendous turnover. Uh, challenges in the industry where someone's willing to go, you know, down the street for 25 cents an hour more, right? You know, a big challenge, but they feel like the, the firm is investing in their wellness, they're likely to stay. Um, and we can, you know, reduce, uh, redu re reduce turnover. Um, again, in our industry, safety, um, people feeling like the, um, the firm has uh, standard, well-run, well-implemented, well-supported processes for safety and security of employees. Huge, huge, huge issue. Um, you know, uh, advancement. When people feel like they can advance in life, they feel like they've got control and that contributes to mental health. So I think all of these things start to really fit together, um, again, in this hopefully wonderful, you know, virtuous cycle uh, between uh, between do, doing well and, and doing good, and the more the better the business does, the more we can you know invest back into um, into these kinds of uh, programs and practices. Absolutely, you know, Stu. When we first spoke about you joining BIP and the work ahead of you, it felt really daunting to me. I can only imagine how it felt to you. But I recognized that with your passion and your incredible brain, there's nothing that Thanks. can stop We're you. We're giving it a go. <laughs> You're doing great. You really are. I do have curiosity only because I'm, and I am, and my listeners are probably not as familiar with the private equity world as they are with the healthcare world. So the private equity world, this idea of creating a center of excellence that's focused on people, is BIP the first to market on this? Absolutely. Crazy new. Crazy new, you know my my partner Matt, who seduced me into into doing this, is uh, is uh, has a tremendous vision 
Um, he's been incredibly successful um, and realized that this is an opportunity to both be more successful um, and to create a model. Um, you know, we, we have a theory of change, right, for the, for the industry, but it really starts with um, being able to, at the coal face, demonstrate success, right? That's where it all starts. So for us, our, our, our investments are where we prove that out. Over time, as we learn more, we can turn that into case studies and we can turn that into training and other kinds of things that we hope to, you know, more broadly distribute out um, in, into the industry. Uh, but in the short term, you know, um, uh, joining good folks like you on podcasts like that, this is at least part of our sharing that vision and, and hopefully in a, in a compelling way. So all those things sort of come together. But, um, you know, it, it's funny because um, we were um, on a um, Zoom call the other day with some potential investors, a family office, um, which is a, um, you know, when a family has some amount of wealth, they have these family offices and they have to decide how they're going to distribute their money and they work kind of as a board and a governance and, and all that. And, um, you know, there were questions about um, the, our commitment to the people first side. And just going to your point, um, you know, my partner Matt said, look, um, uh, it, here's a pretty demonstrable evidence of my commitment. I've brought Stu on. Right. So, you know, it is um, it is not a, uh, a usual thing for a private equity firm um, to um, be spending the effort and time and money to put in place a center of excellence focused on people. Right. You know, that's a pretty demonstrable commitment to the, you know, to the to the vision. Um, so, yes, it is. It's new. We're hoping it becomes more and more of a model. It's not new that firms private equity firms have arms that can support the operations of their investments. Um, many do, not all. Some do. I don't know, many. many there are many examples out there. Uh, but I believe none that are really believe that the focus on people is really, at the end of the day, the core fundamental uh, uh, of making it all work. Well, it seems to me that what BIP is doing is a great pilot to understand whether or not we can combine the two, profit and wellness together as an organization's North Star. And I'm excited to see the fruits of your labor. If you don't mind, would you share with us how you believe the combination of focusing on the employee value proposition translates to financial success? You talked a little bit in terms of the five pillars that you're focusing on. Yeah. So yeah, I talked a little bit about that, but I think on, on multiple levels, Tracy. So let's start with the fact that um, the building industry currently cannot attract enough employees to be able to deliver up against the needs of America. Let's just start right there. <laughs> um, so, you know, as we look at firms, as we do our due diligence, their number one challenge is recruiting and retention. Um, and so, you know, what are some of the fundamental, there are many, many, many reasons why they have it. Um, there is not a great EVP um, in the building industry. There is also not a great EVP, there is also not a great understanding of the EVP as it is. 
So people don't even consider joining, right? So there's also a little bit of a marketing challenge. You actually can make a pretty good life for yourself in the building industry, right? People make pretty reasonable amounts of money when you look at in the, in the context. Not, no, nonetheless, the broader employee value proposition isn't there. So um, there is the simple fact of just attracting more people into the industry to be able to um, uh, be able to kind of just basically do business. I would note that that is also attracting more and different kinds of people into the building industry. So our employee value proposition needs to be for all potential, all different kinds of employees, right? Making the building industry, which has not been traditionally seen as hospitable to women or you know, other underrepresented um, communities um, as strong as possible. Also, um, to the extent that it has been, you know, obviously the building industry has a strong Hispanic um, uh, community in, in various geographies. Also, um, tapping into tapping into those folks. So I start with kind of the labor shortage, right? So you know you can't make money unless you have people, right? You know, are they assets or are they costs? How do we attract them in? Um, then there is um, our uh, I mentioned before the challenges of the industry, right? You know, um, and to meet the challenges of the industry, to be more productive, to um, uh, come up with greater innovations we need to um, tap into, as I said before, the passions and capabilities and predilections of, of people. Um, I think we all know that um, people can be tremendous idea generating devices. Um, and um, you know, how do we turn on that engine um, to um, enable our businesses in the industry at large to deal with the challenges? It's no easy feat to deal with the um, sustainability challenges in the industry, and there's no, it's no easy feat to help builders who are dealing with the, the, um, the uh, requests of their customers, right? And they need good partners um, to help them, help them do that. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's kind of a piece. Um, and then, you know, kind of, kind of more broadly, I think that, um, or maybe more fundamentally, the customer set of the building industry is ever more diverse and ever more challenging. And so we need to help, um, help our people be able to add more value to a more diverse and more challenging customer segment. And unless our people feel um, like they have a strong employee value proposition, unless they feel like they've got skin in the game in terms of helping folks out, unless they've got the right training, unless they feel you know, comfortable, they will not do as well at, at um, adding value to their customers. So I think it's sort of multifaceted, um, uh, multifaceted but, but at the end of the day, pretty, hopefully when I say it, kind of pretty obvious uh, kind of connections, which maybe folks aren't um, focusing in on as much as, as much as we'd like them to. So thank you. We've spent a lot of time talking about building industry partners. Now I want to talk a little bit more about you. So you've had a long and impressive history supporting organizations across the health ecosystem before you got into the building industry. How do you feel that healthcare has influenced you and has brought you to where you are today? Yeah, Tracy, I mean, that's a, 
interesting and important question, and maybe I'll maybe I'll answer it on uh, on a couple of different levels, uh, kind of delving in a, a little bit on both maybe the personal and professional level. Um, so yeah, I mean, personal, professional, kind of good and bad. On on the personal level, um, you know, my my family has um, experienced its share of health challenges. Um, and so uh, everyone is fine now, but um, you know, so I have seen the power of the healthcare ecosystem, right? And what it can achieve and the dedication of its people and the, um, the drive of the healthcare sector and the intellect and you know, the value of tremendous leadership in the healthcare sector and how it's, you know, moved our economy forward and how it's changed people's lives. Um, you know, at the same time, um, being in the bowels of the healthcare sector at times, you know, as my family has dealt with, with healthcare issues, I've also seen some of the kind of interpersonal dysfunction <laughs> which exists there, right? You know, I've seen, you know, um, tremendously dysfunctional hierarchical conversations happening uh, among people at the bedside of people I care about in other places and you know crying out you know the 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 the, the that moment trying out for higher EQ um, and better ability to collaborate um, I've seen poor leadership you know at different places you know kind of in the bows so you know in that way, it's kind of um, reinforced both sides, right, of what you and I do for a living, right? You know, you see these sort of tremendous leaders and tremendous moving forward, and you've seen still the, um, the tremendous um, challenges in terms of skill development and ability to collaborate kind of on a day-to-day -day basis that we see. So, you know, I think that that's fair on, on kind of a professional level, same thing as you mentioned, you know, I spent 30 years of a career um, working in healthcare um, with a real focus on alliances, customer supplier collaboration, uh, customer uh, healthcare and hospital and pharma and government collaboration. Again, I've seen the, that those collaborative activities generate tremendous value for um, for the world, for the country, for their uh, for the organizations, um, and I have also seen collaborations that ought to work fall apart uh, because of the lack of capability to effectively manage complex relationships and difference. Right, so you know, kind of on on each of those levels, right, personal and professional, I've seen good and I've seen bad. Uh, for me, they they influence my thinking. Um, and ho hopefully they influence my, my practice. Yes, yes. I didn't mention it at the very beginning, but I'll reiterate your work on negotiations at Harvard, which I certainly want to make our listeners aware of the great work that you've done there. What advice do you have for leaders looking to enhance health and wellness within their own communities and industries? Yeah, such an important, such an important question. I mean, look, you know, the, there are, uh, certainly, I know that your your listeners will know this as well as any group of people, and certainly better better than I. But there are just so many unbelievable capabilities sitting all across, you know, a community, an ecosystem, 
a, uh, you know, a network, right, in different places. Lots of capabilities, lots of different kinds of capabilities who got access to different information and data and reasoning paths and people and all of that. So, you know, that is, that's the promise, right, of, of your question, right, looking to enhance wellness. There, there is no, um, I, 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 I don't, maybe I'd be a little bit remiss to say, but I don't think there's any lack of capability which is out there. There's tremendous capability which is out there. So I think, you know, we need leaders who can kind of operate though on both levels, right? You need people who have the vision um, uh, to, uh, to imagine what bringing those capabilities together could entail, right? They can, they can, they can, they can imagine it out. They can think it through. They can they can think strategically about the puzzle pieces and how they could come together, um, and and um, and think through what the value proposition with those would be and give voice to those in a way which is compelling enough to get people interested. <laughs> to get people interested. Um, but then they also need this other set of skills, which is actually the operational skills to. Um, bring that vision together into, um, into something which is going to work. Um, and that requires, um, you know, tremendous, tremendous facilitation capability and alignment creating capability and the ability to um, govern, if you will, either formally or informally, a complex network of relationships where you know, the differences between those folks involved um, in the network are both tremendous sources of value and sources of tremendous potential dysfunction, right? And so how do you as a leader, um, you know, make it all work? Um, and I think that sometimes people in the healthcare industry um, uh, um, uh, under understand um, what's actually required to really intervene in, devise, design, and drive, you know, a network to, to that vision and how much unique skill and capability it takes. So, um, you know, the, but I think that's the promise of, of, of your industry, right? In terms of kind of bringing it all together. Yes, I think it is often difficult to find within one leader the ability to be both strategic and visionary, as well as executing on the strategy, which is why it's so important to be able to partner and recognize where you may need to collaborate and bring in additional resources to make things happen. We see this a lot in our work, specifically in leadership development. So thank God you're young enough that this question will be far out into the future, but I do always end my podcasts with this one question. What do you want your legacy to be as a leader? Oh boy, what a what a question! You know, um, I I want to um, I want my legacy as a leader to be one where um, you know I've been able to give voice in compelling ways to concepts which I 
believe based on um, experience work. Um, and, you know, they are, um, I, I think many of the concepts that I was just talking about, Tracy, they are both intuitive and counterintuitive. And I'll say that because there's all sorts of ways things that we've been talking about here are intuitive, right? You know, you tap into people um, and may, maybe they're sort of intuitive in an espoused sort of way. People, people give voice to them right at the espoused level. Um, but they are, they must also be counterintuitive because there is oftentimes a gap between the espoused practice and the actual practice, right? The demonstrated practice. So there's something about these intuitive notions that are challenging for people to really get their heads around and to then operationalize, right? There's dynamics that kind of keep keep the gap between espoused and practice larger than any of us would like it to be. Um, and I think that into, into that mix um, uh, ought to come, you know, I, I think the thing that can deal with that mix and that can make that gap between espoused and practice as small as possible is first optimism, um, mm. uh, I think one. Two, um, the ability to um, give voice to that gap and to um, articulate out these concepts in ways that I think people can understand and can be compelling, um, and then do my best to, um, to uh, demonstrate in my own daily life and my own daily practice, um, uh, 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 putting those concepts into play. And I think if people feel like, you know, if, if, uh, that's a lot of words, but I think if people were going to look back on me as a legacy, as a leader and said, hey, you know, he, 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 he brought an optimistic point of view to a bunch of concepts that could make, uh, that we could operationalize and make a difference in people's lives. That'd be, that'd be pretty good. I think I'd be okay with that. And we're better for it, Stu. We really are. Well, thanks. thanks. This has been an incredible delight for me. I want to thank you. I'm sure our listeners are going to be very excited to hear from somebody outside the health industry. Well, it's great to, great to talk to you. And certainly, uh, if uh, as, as you can tell, I like to talk about this stuff. So if any of your listeners feel like they want to talk some more about it, they should certainly feel free to reach out. But uh, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for inviting. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stu. For those of you interested in learning more about leadership, please visit us at TLD Group's website. Join us for more interviews with health ecosystem leaders during our podcast series. And of course, stay tuned for the release of our book entitled From Competition to Collaboration, How Leaders Cultivate Cross-Sector Partnerships to Deliver Value and Transform Health. Thank you for joining us.